morning, church. Good morning. Glad to see you guys. Thanks for being here and being online. If you're new with us, I especially want to welcome you and say thanks for coming. Um, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you to pull that out, fill it out, put it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out, and we'd love to contact you in a respectful way. In just a moment, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 6, so if you would, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to that passage. That's where we're going to be looking today and asking God to speak to us. This is week 6 in a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, and this book is answering specific questions and telling us specific stories about who God is and how He works in the world. And, and first, we kind of learn that God is this God of restoration, that he loves to take restoration projects and pour out his mercy and grace and to make things better than they even were in the beginning. Um, that is ultimately the story of God's work in the world, that he's taking broken things and he's fixing them. And then we also have learned that God loves to invite us to be part of his work of restoration. He doesn't just do it um, himself. He's doing it through his people. He's including us in his work and saying, join me as I work out restoration in the world. And then lastly, we've been looking at how every time people join up with God's work, there is opposition to it. And so that, that narrative just kind of continues in this passage that we're going to look at today in Nehemiah chapter 6. You would think that they've already dealt with it. First, they've dealt with threats and accusations and uh, with physical threats, with slander, with people accusing them of things. And then this week, it kind of continues. And so bottom line as we launch into this passage is this, that any Christian, any person who's pursuing, following Christ Jesus and living a life of consequence is going to experience a corresponding degree of resistance to that walk of faith. But also we can be confident in this, that whatever God calls us to, he provides the grace for what he's called us to. He will accomplish it in his time and in his way. And he's graciously including us and accomplishing his purposes in the world. And so with that in mind, let's read through Nehemiah chapter 6, and we're going to read up to verse 14. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah, that's the enemies of God's work, and Geshem and the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekaphirim in the plain of Orono. Oh no, sorry. Oh no. <laughs> but they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner, in the same way. Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, no such things as you have say have been done, for you, invent, you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. 
But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray once again that it would both confront us and comfort us, that we would be provoked to obedience, to courage, to faith and repentance, and that your gospel once again would just reign supreme in this place, that as we exalt you, that you would draw us to yourself and we lift up your name. I pray once again that you draw our hearts once again to you and that we would see you as you are and respond in a way that would be faithful today. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you guys ever had the intentions behind what you were doing completely misconstrued by someone around you? They looked at what you were doing, some attempt that you were making, and they completely misinterpreted it. Maybe they intentionally misinterpreted what you're doing. Now, and there's lots of of, uh, terminals on this pathway of following Christ where we could get off, and one of the tactics of our enemy is that he would distract us with this kind of opposition that would take what we're trying to do and completely misinterpret it, gossip about it, slander us. Um, If the enemy couldn't stop the work, he wanted to deter what Nehemiah was called to do in rebuilding the wall. Now, I want to walk through three different points today. The first one is that we have an innovative enemy, that he will not stop. Then we're going to look at how Nehemiah responds. And then we're going to ask some questions about how we might faithfully respond as we engage in God's work. First of all, just situationally, here's what's going on. God had called Nehemiah to this specific task of rebuilding the wall in his place so that he could set his name there and reestablish security for his people and that he could have them worship him in the place that he had designated for them to worship him. They're coming back. The wall is almost complete. He says this at the beginning of the chapter. Look, everything had been finished except for a few gates, a few walls. So it's, it's closing in. The enemies who had mocked and threatened and questioned God's people suddenly show back up. Their work was not complete and they, their tactics hadn't worked before. And so they ta- try a different attempt. They move on to another tactic. Now, before I move on to describing how they attacked him, I want to just point out that we have an enemy that's relentless and innovative, and when you think that you're secure and you can rest and let down your guard, you're reminded once again that these are war times. And the same thing is happening. They're putting together the wall. Nehemiah has, has put aside divisions among the people. It seems like everything is a success. They're almost complete with the walls, and suddenly the enemy shows back up with these four messages. They have been silenced right now by the progress, but they're not finished trying to stop God's work. And if you cannot stop God's work, if the enemy can't stop God's work, he's going to try some other form. And there's three tactics, four if you kind of include the slander at the end, um, three tactics that he attempts to stop Nehemiah's track. And the first one was hypocrisy. This idea that they would be friends. Hey, look, we see that you're doing well now. Why don't you come out and meet with us? Let's be friends. 
So they try to make allies with Nehemiah, and someone shows you kindness. You ever experience this where somebody shows you kindness, but you know just underneath that they have some other motive, that they want to destroy you? That's exactly what's happening with this enemy. He's saying, come on out. Come on out. Let's, let's do a friendly networking and get together with some other leaders in the area. And when that doesn't work, four times they're persistent in it. And every time, Nehemiah sends them back the same message. Look, I'm doing a great thing here. Don't mess with me. I'm not going to stop. And we're going to get to his response in just a minute. But when that didn't work, they send an open letter, okay, which is basically gossip and slander. It's like saying, hey, we want everybody to see what we're saying about you. And the open letter basically accuses his intentions. You're not after this for God's work. You're, you're trying to set your up as, yourself up as a king and a leader. They begin to misinterpret what he had been doing. And I don't know if this is actually true, that they were worried that he would be king, possibly, but either way, there was no way that they, they didn't just come up with this out of their heads. Um, quick side note, every time a leader is insecure about threats, they're going to make up stuff about the other people that aren't even real. Like, you see this with Pharaoh in Exodus. He's like, look, these people are getting too powerful. They're going to rise up against me. And that's when he oppresses them even greater. In the same way, these people are feeling threatened by Nehemiah's progress, and they make up stories saying, hey, he wants to be king, he wants to rebel. Two things. He questions their allegiance to uh, Artaxerxes. That's the first thing. And he's saying, hey, you're putting together an alliance among yourself, and eventually you're going to rebel against him. This is gossip and libel. They're, they're basically saying something in an open letter to attack the character of Nehemiah. Intended, it's intended to call into question his leadership. It's intended to look at all the people who would read it and for them to begin to question, like, this guy, you really can't trust him. He's not out for your good. He's out for his own good. It creates a doubt in his character, a skepticism with anybody who would read it, anyone who potentially would fear the, the area being unstable. They would have read that and said, we need to put this out. This is dangerous work that he's doing. All of these things were intended to do two things, to cross fear and to shut down God's work. Now, I can imagine being both sides of this scenario. Now, um, most of us like to picture ourselves as Nehemiah in this story because he's the hero and we're thinking, hey, oh, I know exactly what it feels like for my intentions to be misinterpreted. Everyone knows what that feels like. But I just want to suggest for a moment that we just evaluate before we just quickly put ourselves in the place of the hero. Have you ever been in a place where you looked at someone and you felt threatened by them and so you just imagined that they were up to no good? You ever been in that place? It's a little bit harder to admit, but that's also what's going on in this passage. There's people that are slandering Nehemiah because they were threatened by his leadership. They were threatened by what was going on. And when that didn't result in what they wanted, they send in this false prophet. They use religious, uh, a shroud of religiosity to get him to fall to, to this weakness of fear. They hire someone to speak a prophecy against Nehemiah. They're using all this spiritual language in order to manipulate the situation. So they've used hypocrisy, gossip, lies. And as I said, there's two sides to this story, right? Um, anytime you misinterpret someone's intention, you could be in danger of practicing the same kind of hypocrisy. Of slandering someone like when you feel like you can't win. Some of you, I, I, I can imagine that people walking into this room and even hearing online that they're, they're faced with situations where you feel like, hey, we cannot win this. I can't win. 
either way I play it, like in your marriage, in your home, with your parenting, have you ever been in a place where you felt like you were backed into a corner? One of the things that will result when you feel that way is that you'll begin to question everything the person across from you, all of their intentions. You'll begin to interpret everything they're doing as negative. Anybody have testimony of this? Like not only receiving it, but dishing it out. And then the worst is when we participate in gossip. I love this uh, quote from Scott Saul's Irresistible Grace. It says this. It's going to be on the screen. Gossip. I think it's going to be on the screen. There it is. Gossip is pornography of the mouth, a cheap thrill that offers zero commitment to the person being objectified. It's a powerful statement, isn't it? Listen, as soon as you join up with God's purposes in the world, there's going to be opposition. And there's going to be people who question your intentions, who misinterpret what you're doing, and who will gossip about you. That is just, it just goes with the territory. And for those of you who are experiencing betrayal, discouragement, doubt, um, I think there's a lot of encouragement to be found in the way that Nehemiah responds to this. Nehemiah's response, it's the next part. Let's just look at it. Verse 3, he responds to them first by saying, I'm doing a great work. In other words, I know what I'm supposed to be occupied with, and it's not you or these messages to come and meet up with you. I'm not into the networking thing today. Today, I'm going to be about God's work. I love his response to their sinister invitation. He sees right through it. Not only does he see through it, but he's resolved and committed to exactly what God has called him to. I love his auto reply. Four times in a row, they send him this invitation, and four times in a row, he says, it is a great work that I'm doing. Why should I leave this great work? and come out to you? Why should I stop what God's called me to to engage with this trifle that you've invited me to? Now, how do you get to that kind of response to all of the distractions of the world? Because I promise you, if Satan wants to do anything to your life, he wants to destroy you, but if he can't destroy you, he will distract you from whatever God has for you. He will distract you from the purposes that God has, and his resolve was undergirded with this. He knew God's purposes for him. He had a holy ambition. Now, we... We don't like to talk about ambition that much because a lot of times it can just be misdirected in the wrong direction. Ambition in in the world's eyes is just occupying ourselves with our success and our comfort and having everything that we could possibly dream of. But God's ambition, the one that he places in our hearts, is when we really, really, really want to do something and God really, really, really wants us to do that same thing for his purposes. A holy ambition is, it, I love this. Piper talks about in his book, Holy Ambition. Um, you can download it for free online, by the way. John Piper talks about Christian growth in moving from these childish ambitions to knowing exactly what God has created you for in this world, knowing your why, knowing your purpose in the world. One of the signs of maturity for a believer is that you put away childish ambitions and you grasp onto God's ambition, his purpose different for every single person in the room, is universally the same, that we would all glorify him, that we would make him look glorious in the world, that he would make his character and purposes displayed through his people. So that's ultimately the undergirding of God's, of Nehemiah's resolve, is that he knew what his holy ambition was. He knew what it was. He was created for this work. God had invited him into it, and he was about it. He wasn't going to leave it. Now, some of you are thinking, now, what is, what is the thing that I was designed for? What's my holy ambition? 
It comes from two things where your soul is satisfied in Jesus and the world is thirsty for him in your life. You, you can see their thirst and you know your own satisfaction and how he's resolved that thirst for your own soul. A lot of times that's how we discover what God made us for. I talked about this earlier on in the series. We also discover God's ambition for our life by what we weep over. What is our greatest burden when we look at the world and say, this is broken. It's not right. I want and need and long to step into this brokenness. And, and God would wield his purposes in those spaces where we see God's satisfaction in our life for our own thirst and see the world's thirst for him. And so you see those two realities collide for Nehemiah when he engages in this great work of rebuilding the wall and making it secure. And he, they saw that great work as self-seeking. The people looking on were able to look at Nehemiah's great work and they were like, he just wants to be king. He just wants something good for himself. And I, I want to point this out to you. A lot of times where God looks most glorious in us, others would look at that and say, they just want some glory for themselves. And it can keep us from engaging in the most purpose-filled activities that we could fill our days with. We could feel nervous. And, and you know where that starts? Have you ever looked around you and you begin to look at others and say, you know what, they're just after it for themselves. When you begin to judge others on that standard, you'll find yourself re refusing to do the things God called you into and invited you into because you're afraid others are going to look at you and say the same things. It'll pause you in God's work. And those questions that the enemy asks of him, you really just want to set up king. They're tactical. They're tactical. There's questions about our own ambitions for God's purposes that are tactical. Sometimes the enemy will accuse us of saying, you know what, you just want to get your name to be uh, displayed. You want your name to be remembered when ultimately God's inviting us to make and be part of his name being remembered and known and experienced. So he had a holy ambition. His, the second part of his resolve is that he was just, <laughs> I am not leaving this task. He has a response to them and to their slander. Verse 8, he says to them, look, these things aren't even true. You're just making them up in your mind. He doesn't mince words with them. He says, that's just not true. He has a holy ambition. He has a holy response to their accusations. He's saying, look, there's no room for that. You're just making these things up in your head. And he has discernment. He has the ability to recognize how the enemy is coming after him. He knows exactly what they're accusing in him. And he knows exactly what their tactics will yield. He's saying, they just want me to be afraid so that the work will not continue. He knows what their motive is. He has discernment that he, he's not going to stop the work. Oswald Chamber, uh, he says this in my utmost for his highest. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Nehemiah's life and work was defined by this reverence of God's presence. He feared the Lord, and so God set him about this work. And every time they tried to come after him, he discerned, this is what the enemy's doing. The enemy would have me to be afraid, and I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to keep moving. Look at his response in verse 11. He shows courage. I'm, will I not run and hide to save my skin? Is such a man as I to run? They lie to him. The prophet comes and says, you should go hide because people are going to kill you in the night. And he says, 
is that what kind of man I am? Am I the kind of person who's going to run if somebody's coming after me? In other words, no, I'm not. I'm not the guy that's going to run from people coming after me. I'll be here if they need me. I'll be right here on the wall. They know where to find me. He shows courage and conviction. He also suggests in verse 11 that this would be sacrilegious for him to run and hide in the temple. He's not going to do it because it wasn't God's plan. Such action is going to go. He's not going to use religion to save his life. He's dependent on God and and resolved his purposes. And then last part of his resolve is this holy dependence. Two places he turns to God in prayer in the midst of this. The first one, he says, God, give me strength. He discerns what they're doing, and he turns his face towards God. He says, Lord, strengthen my hands for this work. He knows that what God has called him to, he cannot do on his own. And he's confident in prayer that God would not only give him strength, but he would fulfill his justice. He trusted that God was going to sort it out. In other words, he says, Lord, remember these folks that are against me. You remember them. You deal with them. I'm going to entrust all of them to you. The enemy would have us come out and meet all of the opposition and say, you know, i got to put out this fire and this fire and this fire. After his simple response, he prays and says, God, I'm going to leave those enemies to you. You remember them. You deal with them. I trust your justice over my own. Just as Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, Nehemiah entrusts his justice to God alone. So the key to Nehemiah's faithfulness wasn't in his knowledge, his adaptability, his emotional IQ. It was in his resolve to trust God with his future and the outcome instead of trusting his own hands to do the work. There's always this open invitation for us to just pray to God in the midst of whatever God's invited us to, saying, God, I trust you with these conflicts that I can't resolve. I trust you with the wounds that I've incurred. I trust you with my past. I trust you with the future. We need only ask God to enter into our days. He's already there. We just need to not neglect him and his presence. I love this book, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. He talks about just just constantly pouring out your heart in prayer. This is a quote from it. It says this. Prayer is asking God to incarnate, to get dirty in your life. Yes, the eternal God scrubs floors. For sure we know he washes feet. So take Jesus at his word. Ask him. Tell him what you want. Get dirty. Write out your prayer request. Don't mindlessly drift through life on the American narcotic of busyness. If you try to seize the day, the day will eventually break you. Seize the corner of his garment and don't let go until he blesses you. He will reshape the day. That's the invitation of God. The invitation isn't to to just seize this life of purpose and to grab it by the horns and then just wield it into God's purposes. He's saying, no, here's how you do what I've called you to do. You cry out to me in dependence. Lord, strengthen my hands for the work. I cannot do it on my own. You take care of all the opposition. I'm just keep doing the task that you've called me to. God's purposes always are accompanied by his power. They're not only accompanied by his enemies, they're accompanied by his power to accomplish the work that he's called you to. So why does this matter? Why does this matter? I want to give you a few reasons why this is important. First, that God is inviting all of us to engage in his redemptive work. He's saying, everyone who would come to me, come to me weary and broken and take my yoke upon you for it is easy 
I have purposes for you in the world that you could not accomplish for your life. He's inviting us to live lives of consequence that engage with what he's doing in the world instead of just being preoccupied with what we want to happen in the world. We're their own little kingdoms. He's not inviting us to invite him into our lives. He's inviting us to join him in his life and his history in the world. He's saying, you can join me in my purposes of making myself known in the world. And instead of living in these little bitty stories that are basically about ourselves, we're in every single scene and everyone comes in and out of the story about us. We get to participate in God's great story where he's unveiling who he is and what he's like in the world. That's what Nehemiah was committed to and resolved to stay part of. That's a holy ambition that we can get behind. Now, the question that I always ask myself when I think about God's purposes in the world is what does the finish line look like? What does it look like? Somebody posted this week about an obituary of a local man who was in the Wall Street Journal, which is awesome, right? That someone from down home Mississippi... We'll get named in this big uh, nationwide newspaper. A few years ago, I was, um, this guy was talking about uh, the New York Times and how they determine how much space an obituary gets in their newspaper. Because it's limited, right? They can't, like, name everyone. And so every single day, you can go onto the New York Times, and they have, like, you know, three, four, five of the most famous people who've died. You can go see it. And depending on what, they have like a, 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 an equation where basically they measure the worth of someone's life. They say, okay, how much did they accomplish? How many people know them? How much notoriety they have? How, how did they live a life of consequence so that they can get published in the New York, New York Times? It is a really important question, right? Like, how do you measure your consequence in life? How do you measure the purpose of your life and how well you fulfilled it. And I would suggest it's not by seeing who would print your obituary, okay? It's not even by the accolades that you would receive at your eulogy, although that is important. You want to know and answer the question, what are people going to say and why are they going to say it whenever I, whenever I perish? What will they say about my life? Ultimately, the question that is more important than that is what will people know about God at the end of my days on this earth? What will they see of his glory? Because listen, one day, no one's going to know your name. No one. No one's going to remember whether or not Nathan pastored this church one day. One day, this building will be gone. One day, even the purposes that God's called us to will pass away. But there will be one name that's remembered. And he set all of creation to declare his glory. And he's inviting us to participate, not in just the little ripples of our life and the effects that they have. He's invited us to, to participate in the great torrent of his glory passing over the earth. It says that it will fill the earth as the seas. And he's saying, you can be part of that, or you can be part of your little minuscule story. And Nehemiah's resolve was grounded in this. He had a holy ambition to see God's name known and, and declared in this city and for the people to worship him there. That's what we get to be invited into. And it is a privilege 
And so I want to ask you three questions in closing today. The first question is this. Do you know God's purposes? Do you experience God's purposes? Do you know this holy ambition where you really, really, really want to do what God really, really, really wants you to do? And those two places where your satisfaction in Him and the world's thirst for Him align and you get to display what He's like to the thirsty world. Do you know what that's like? Do you know that purpose? And I want to, I want to just speak and invite you to understand that there's something so much bigger than whatever small story that we might live in. There's so much greater than the narrative that we could participate in. Do you know God's purpose? And then the second question I have is is really important too. Do you know your enemy? Do you know him? Do you know that he's innovative and that he has a new tactic for everyone you refute every single day? Do you know this enemy? Do you know that every time you try to live a life of consequence for God's glory, there is going to be a great uh, result where there's an enemy who wants to push against it, who wants to invite you into some other narrative to distract you, to network with other people who do not matter and do not have your good in mind. There's lots of little ways. But one of the greatest ways that we can refute this enemy is that we just step into obedience. Just simple obedience with our lives. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Screwtape Letters, but it's basically a fictional narrative about these two demons. One older demon who's mentoring this younger demon, and and he's basically telling him, here's all the ways that you need to get after this guy, okay? And he's got his client, his patient, and the enemy in the book is God, even though they're, they're speaking. It's kind of like learning the enemy's tactics, a great book. This is a quote from it. It says this, and, and this is a letter from Wormwood, I mean, from uh, Screwtape back to Wormwood. It says, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and ask why he has been forsaken and still obeys. The greatest threat we can have to our enemy is just simple obedience in the day-to-day faithfulness, loving our spouses, loving our kids, doing good work. Do you know God's purposes? Do you know his enemies? And then my last question for you is this. Do you know the Savior? Do you know him? Because Christ He's not asking you to do great things in order to be accepted by Him. He has done a great thing so that we might be accepted by Him. He's already declared that there is something you couldn't do that He did for you and all you have to do is receive it. Do you know this Savior who looks at the the narratives that we've chased, the little stories that we've made with our lives, and he chooses to welcome us in no matter how much time we've spent distracted with little things. And he says, you can be part of my great story. You can first stand in line for redemption and reconciliation before you go offer that to other people. You can receive forgiveness for every way that you've failed me. Do you know this great Savior? Do you know him? When he was tempted to, uh, when he was tempted, he obeyed every single time. He was betrayed with a, tri- with a kiss. 
if you know the experience of people misinterpreting your motives and just misconstruing you as the enemy instead of the real enemy, he knows this better than anyone. And he entrusted himself to one who judges justly. Some of you are dealing with just bitterness over the ways that you've been treated, maybe over people that have have spoken unfairly about you or even to you. And here's what I want to suggest, that our Savior, he understands that perfectly and he always reacted in a perfect way, sinless way. He describes his own disciples as telling him, you got to stop this path. He knew God's purposes for him was to die in our place for our sins. And Peter said, look, you can't do that. You can't go die. Like, I'm planning on us being great and taking over and everything. And Jesus says, you've got to get behind me, Satan. This is not, this is not my purpose. God's purposes for you may look different than what you would have intended for yourself, but do you know the Savior who even when he was presented with some other option, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, who prayed in the garden, Lord, take this, take, please take this cup away from me. He knew the suffering that his call would call him to, and he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And ultimately, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this, For you, to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he's saying, look, you're no different than Jesus. Here's what he did when he was reviled. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How hard is that to do? That when people would come after you and misinterpret you and and say that you've got all these ulterior motives, he said, no, listen, this is the way of Christ. You entrust all of your life to the one who's going to ultimately judge you justly. And then ultimately he says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Thank God for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word over all who would believe. That in every way that we might be judged, God judges justly. That we entrust to him who lived perfectly in our place for our sins. Do you know this Savior? If you do not know him, I long for you to know him today. You were designed and created for his purposes and for his glory and to receive this great gift of reconciliation and redemption to him. You were made for that. It is the very thing you were made for. And every other thing, are just tri- it's all just trifles. And now in, in conclusion of just asking this question, do you know this Savior? Some of you are thinking, I have not done anything for God. Like when you talk about a holy ambition, you're like, look, I'm, my ambition is just get my shoes on in the morning and get out the door. Anybody relate to that? I definitely have days like that. We're like, I just want to get through the day without losing my cool, okay? I just don't want to lose my temper today. That would be success. I just want to get through it. And the enemy would want you in this moment to obsess over all the time that you've wasted, over all the distractions. But God wants us to be full of hope for all the time that you have remaining. And to say, Lord, it belongs to you. You can claim it every single day for your glory. And so in closing, I want to show you this just because it just, it speaks to me. There's an image that's going to be on the screen. It's, this is uh, from a book. And it's uh, a book called Every Moment Holy. And there's all these different liturgies. And this image comes right before this liturgy that's called a prayer for those who have not done great things for God. 
by Douglas Kane uh, McKelvey. Go back to the image. I just want you to leave it up for a moment. I want to read some words from this prayer. It's a responsive prayer. How many times have I been told, O oh Christ, my by well-meaning people, that it is my destiny and my charge to go out into the world and to do great things for you? How many times in response have I prayed earnestly, asking that you would bring such things to pass? That you might use me mightily for the work of your kingdom. How many times then have I waited expectantly and waited and waited for the great things, whatever it might be, to be made obvious? How many times have I felt the gradual settling weight of disillusionment, of disappointment and confusion when no great things materialized? You ever felt that way? You're like, you want to do these awesome things for God, and you're like, maybe I was created for something more, and you just feel like, when is it going to happen? When's the great task going to happen? When's it coming my way, God? I'm faced once again with the same litany of tired, old temptations towing their attendant shames. And in such times, I'm left, O oh Lord, wondering if I have somehow missed your call completely. Maybe I should abandon this pilgrim path entirely, for I fear that you must see me as I see myself, unfit. Unfit for any service to you or for your people or to this world. Was I wrong to desire such things? Was I wrong to desire to do these great things for you, God? And then in the, in the liturgy, there's this pause and there's a response where someone's able to read this prayer over whoever's asking the question. God, I haven't done great things for you. And part of this is going to be on the screen. I'm sorry, go to for it is not that you will do any great thing for God. This is the response. I don't want to read this over you in closing today. For it is not you that will do any great thing for God. But God laboring in you and through you who will greatly accomplish his own purposes according to the workings of his sovereignty and love. Be liberated now from this burden of believing that anything depends on you. And so be liberated, liberated at last to give yourself to his joyful service and grateful response for the grace that he's lavished upon you. Be invested instead, child, in simple obedience to your king and in long faithfulness to his call, shepherding daily those gifts and tasks and relationships he's entrusted to you, regardless of outcomes and appearances. Be content in the station he's appointed you to in this season and yet be ever ready to move at the impulse of his love. Tend well those things that are before you, however humble they may be. And he will lead you in time to other good works he has appointed for you. Whether big or small, it is of no matter. He attaches no numbers to your service. It is your heart and faithfulness he appraises. Seek not your own glory. Seek God and his glory will be seen in you. I'm going to say that again. Seek not your own glory. Seek God and his glory will be seen in you. Radiant in humility and in the strength of his might made manifest even in your brokenness. Evident even in the smallest of services rendered unto him or offered in his name. Even though they be seen by none but you and him, your reward is secure. 
I speak this over you in rest today. God does have great purposes for you. And they may be small, they may be big, whatever it is. Whatever it is, his invitation is to join him as he makes himself known in the daily moments of your life. To declare his praise in the smallest conversation to the greatest platform, whatever it might be, your reward is secure because of what Christ has done before you, not what you could do for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that I would receive it and that we would rejoice in it, that it would both confront us and comfort us. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.